Welcome back to Is It Horror? This is Season 3, Episode 2, The World's End. I'm Brianna. I'm Joe. And I'm Matt. And I am Steve. If you haven't joined us before, each episode we analyze a piece of media, usually a movie, whose horror status is debatable. We look at the creator's intent, audience reception, and the content of the media, all in an effort to better define the horror genre. If you agree with our take, that's awesome. If you don't, that's awesome too. Horror is a diverse genre, and all are welcome. Now, normally, we would head over to Joe's Get to Know You Corner, and we will do that shortly, but we do have a bit of an announcement. You may have noticed that we have one absent from our roll, our roll call, and that is because our friend Mitz has decided to take a break from podcasting, and although she may still pop up on an episode occasionally, she's not going to be with us here as a regular. In the meantime, you can check her out on YouTube at Mitsomnia, where she's doing the Sims 4 Decades Challenge. And uh, I just wanted to say thanks to Mitz, who may be listening later, for being a part of the show. And I I know that we'll miss having you as a part of the show, but we get it and, you know, wish you all the best. Agreed, for sure. She will be missed. A word. She'll be missed, but I want to say that it was all creative differences, and there's a E true Hollywood story coming later about it. No, just kidding. <laughs> oh my god, I can't wait to hear this scandal. She wanted to do Is It the Sims? And I felt like that just wasn't gonna work for almost every movie that exists. So I don't know. It was a big fight. It was terrible. But anyway, <laughs> after all that, we'll now head to Joe's Get to Know You Corner. Joe. So talking about the world's end tonight. Um or whatever time of day it is when you're listening to this. Uh, but uh, so there's 12 pubs in there. And I there's a lot of really cool names, a lot of interesting names that I feel like probably have uh, some cool origin story or, or meaning. But anyways, I was just, it made me think, what would each of you name your pub if you were to open a pub? This is the best question ever. Um, I would name mine Teufel's Tea House, and all the drinks would be served in teapots and served in like secondhand teacups and saucers. And all bartenders need to wear a monocle. The end. <laughs> Love it. Uh, mine, I think I was I tossed around a few things, but I kind of landed on Orion's Belt, uh, and like as in like a belt of scotch or a belt of whiskey. And I, Orion's always been my favorite constellation. So, yeah, Orion's Belt. I love a good pun. A punny pub. It's perfect. <laughs> Thank you. I don't really have a good name, but I was more thinking of, like, what the aesthetic that I would have for it would be. It would probably be, like, I would want it to feel like, like, imagine if... You went to an Applebee's, but everything was actually interesting and related to the local town that you were in, and it was, like, good food and drinks. That's kind of... Because I feel like I really like that small town vibe, especially of Pennsylvania, where every little town has, like, its weird, unique thing about it. That's probably what I would go. And I don't know, I kind of just had the name in my head pop up of The Tankard, and I feel like that would be a funny name or a cool name for a pub, the tankard. If you open it between my house and your house, I will be there like every night. 
<laughs> Sounds like a plan. So my pub is going to be called the Downward Spiral. Now here's the oh, twist. Come though. on, Trent Reznor. But here's the twist, though, is that we're going to have a higher than normal number of bartenders, and they're all going to be trained therapists. And so when you go there thinking, I'm going to downward spiral, instead you can talk to one of our trained therapist bartenders who will help you with your life problems. So it's therapy, but you can drink? Like, that would get me to therapy. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, come to the downward spiral, and in, you know, ironic fashion, you will instead not downward spiral. We'll help you back out. Nice, I like it. That or I'll just plagiarize... Uh, an American werewolf in London, and we'll call it the slaughtered lamb because that's still a badass name for a pub. Yeah. Side question: um, For in all the like the pub names in this movie, did you guys have any favorites? If you don't, that's fine. I was just curious if you had any favorite ones. I can't remember them all now. There were some really good ones, but I cannot recall a single one at the moment. Wahaha, because there's trivia in this episode, so now you can't look it up. You just have to go off your memory. <laughs> You're so rude. I'm definitely not going to Google that on Wikipedia or something. <laughs> I think the thing that's kind of fun about this movie, not to get into it too much just yet, but as far as the pub names, as you're asking, is I think that the pub's names are pretty generic, so they don't necessarily, they don't really stand out on their own, just the memory of what happens there. And I don't know, the old familiar gag is just fun to me, even though the name is nothing special. Yeah, for sure. Like, there's a couple others that come to mind, but, like, they, like, list them all off, like, several times in the movie, but they do it in such quick succession that, like, it is hard to remember them all. Like, you, there's a couple that kind of stand out, but maybe I'll not talk about them because of the trivia question but but uh yeah, yeah. <laughs> i wasn't warned that there was going to be a quiz well cool i think that's wraps it up for the corner so oh that could be a good name for a bar anyways moving on your pub name should just be joe's get to know you corner oh i like that it's the hottest place to date in town <laughs> yeah. i would drink there too Open it between your house and mine. I'm there. Yeah. It could be a pub and a online dating service. Except if it's between two houses, it'll be like in Nebraska. <laughs> hey, Nebraska could be cool, right? There's corn there or something. Fly in there just to get to know Joe at a pub. You know, there you go. In any case, uh, just some other, I guess, news with this. So we're doing the second annual is it horror movie marathon and this closes out the third week of that marathon which was sci-fi or die week so all sci-fi horror and uh, so we're heading into week four next week which will be the side splitter week so it's all horror comedy is what we're going for on that one and you can follow along on our instagram which is at is it horror pod and it'll tell you what the lineup is for the week and the theme as well as what each movie is each day so if you're not sure what you want to be watching for the spooky season, you can still follow along. There's still time to finish out the marathon with us and uh, look for you there. 
So I'll give a spoiler warning here heading into the episode. Anything about The World's End might be spoiled here. Uh, We'll probably also talk a little bit about the other two Cornetto trilogy films, which would be Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, but uh, we'll go ahead and get into the movie. So we're covering The World's End from 2013, which uh, this is actually the 10th anniversary since it was released here, uh, a couple months shy of it since it was in August. But it was directed by Edgar Wright and co-written by Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg. Uh, Edgar Wright, as far as his directorial credits go, are the other two Cornetto films, like I said, Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, as well as Last Night in Soho, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, Baby Driver and the TV show Spaced. And then Simon Pegg also has writing credits on Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, and he's acted in the whole Cornetto trilogy. Uh, He's also acted in the J.J. Abrams Star Trek films, as well as writing the, oh my goodness, should have looked this up ahead of time, but I believe the third one. And uh, you might know him also as Benji in the Mission Impossible series, is also in Ready Player One, so he's been in all sorts of things on the acting side of things. For the the back-of-the-box description for The World's End, 20 years after attempting an epic pub crawl, five childhood friends reunite when one of them becomes hell-bent on trying the drinking marathon again. They are convinced to stage an encore by mate Gary King, a 40-year-old man trapped at the cigarette end of his teens, who drags his reluctant pals to their hometown and once again attempts to reach the fabled pub, The World's End. As they attempt to reconcile the past and present, they realize the real struggle is for the future. Not just theirs, but humankind's. Reaching the world's end is the least of their worries. Okay, so starting out with just the intent of things, I have a couple quotes here, one from Simon Pegg and then a couple from Edgar Wright. So on the Blu-ray extras for The World's End, Simon Pegg said, We didn't, in making The World's End, want to parody anything. We wanted to make a film. It is resolutely without any reference to any other film. What we thought we'd address, if we were going to take anything, was the notion of British social science fiction and not parody it, but take on the tropes, those ideas. So, end quote. So, at least from his perspective, they were looking at this as, like I said, British social science fiction, which, if you're not sure exactly what that entails, I'll have a little bit more information on that same idea in Edgar Wright's upcoming quote here. So, in an interview with Edgar Wright with IndieWire, he said the following about the film. I think The World's End came from a more personal place. When we did Shaun of the Dead, the initial idea was we wanted to be inside a George Romero film, so we wrote a film set inside his universe. And in Hot Fuzz, it was very much about the difference between the mundane reality of British cops and the fantasy of the American police. In this one, even though it's very much in the the paranoid science fiction world, the sci-fi elements came as an expression of our feelings about going home. And then a little later in that same interview, he said, There's a whole wave of movies about small-town paranoia. Invaders from Mars and the UK, there's also a literature element, as well as John Wyndham was a big influence, and Nigel Neal. I think those people are so influential that they are responsible for a lot of great horror and sci-fi in the 60s, which trickled into TV with Doctor Who, The Avengers, and The Prisoner. Uh, John Wyndham, if you're not familiar, one of his big claims to fame, at least that was made into films, was also Day of the Triffids. And then on top of that, too, Simon Pegg has also name-checked Invasion of the Body Snatchers as another possible reference there. So we get things that are sci-fi, they're calling it sci-fi, but acknowledging at least maybe some horror and some of their influence with 
with the film. And then as far as reception goes, uh, across 11 streaming services with 23 different labels, we had 47% calling the film comedy, 34% calling it sci-fi, 9% calling it action, 4% calling it fantasy, 4% calling it apocalyptic, and none calling it horror. But oddly enough, Amazon Prime didn't tag this movie as horror. However, their description reads, five friends reunite for an epic bar crawl that takes an otherworldly turn in this horror comedy from the makers of Shaun of the Dead. They also do this thing on Amazon Prime right now where they'll give you a couple genres, but they'll also then give some just sort of tertiary descriptors, descriptors of the film. And for this one, they particularly put ominous and frightening as the descriptors on top of that. As far as Google search goes, there really isn't any sort of Halloween bump for this because, as we mentioned before, we checked to see if there's a bump in October because that can mean people think of it as a horror film. And then another thing that we've done in the past that I'm going to start bringing back more is basically what you find on the first page of Google if you search The World's End and Horror. And with that, you get the before-mentioned Amazon page several times and several articles about looking back at the 10-year anniversary of the film and mentioning horror in conjunction with Shaun of the Dead and Edgar Wright's love of horror, but there is no real like passionate pleas to accept the film as horror uh, or even just casual acceptance of it as horror. It doesn't really come up that often. Okay, so now that I've talked your ear off, how's everybody vote? The World's End, is it horror? Sorry, guys, but this is not horror. Super entertaining, but not horror. Uh, this one was hard for me. It's similar reasons for um, Hot Fuzz being hard for me. Uh, I, I guess I am going to say no, but. Because <laughs> I want to talk about a bunch of stuff. I mean, obviously, that's what we're going to do. But the, I, I feel like there's a lot there. Uh, but overall, I, I guess I'll say not horror. Yeah, I am also going to say not horror. Yeah, I am going with the same. I think that there's some elements there, and of course we'll get into it, um, but ultimately I had to say no. So first off, as I already mentioned, this is part of what is called the Cornetto Trilogy, or sometimes the Blood and Ice Cream Trilogy. This is the third film in that series, the full trilogy being Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and then of course The World's End. We have covered one of these each episode, and entirely by accident, we covered them in order. So uh, you can always check out those episodes. We covered Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz. Um, but I wanted to see what are some of the reoccurring themes and elements that you all noticed in the Cornado trilogy. Um, it seems like uh, the things that I noticed were is that there's always a character who like won't grow up, may or may not be a raging alcoholic, is a bit of a fuck up, but, you know, lovable. Um, and also there's, you know, these sinister takeovers of um, by some sinister force to these, you know, tiny little quaint, safe, small towns. Um, and of course, there's always a hot blonde. Shout out to Rosamund Pike. She's amazing. And there's always, well, I mean, there's always Simon Pegg and Nick Frost in all three of these, obviously. But there's like kind of a, like good friends, but like there's a conflict between them for one reason or another, it feels like. Um, so I don't know. Complications in friendships seems to be a recurring 
um, theme to me. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I was just going to mention the whole, like, small town thing or, you know, the main character, somebody that people don't believe in, needs to prove himself kind of a thing. Um, so, yeah, and even in Hot Fuzz, although Nicholas Angel is very, like, uh, self-assured, the people there doubt him and don't believe in him, you know? Like, they're just not not seeing it but for different reasons kind of a thing yeah i think at least behind the scenes of course there's that idea that they're all edgar wright and co-written by edgar wright and simon pegg i think that they've at least mentioned the idea that there's a theme of conformity to one degree or another in all of these whether it's conforming in the zombie apocalypse or conforming to the town aesthetic that's supposed to be there and or police uh procedures and you know what you think a police officer ought to be in hot fuzz and then of course in this world the whole star bucking of the world if you will um and then of course there's some of the little like gags i think that maybe a little bit more than some of his other films the cornaldo trilogy is designed to be very self-referential and to foreshadow things a lot so you kind of like have the sense of what's coming throughout all of them um and, and then, of course, there's, like, smaller things like the fence gag and stuff like that that's got to happen in each one. And Cornettos. And, of course, the most por- important thing, yes, the, the reason it gets its name. There's a different flavor of Cornetto in each movie, which was real dumb to leave out. But anyway, thank you, Joe. <laughs> uh, so one of the things, at least, I saw on this one that I was kind of curious about, if you thought that um, this film first and foremost, clearly being sci-fi, if you think that kept people from seeing it as horror, or if that really doesn't have anything to do with it at the end of the day. I think it does to an extent, only because I'm one of those people who have a real hard time um, seeing sci-fi as horror, with the exception of like the ones that I've mentioned a million times before. Um, Yeah, I think for me, the sci-fi element really tip the scales for me into into the not horror territory for me um i kind of love uh sci-fi horror um as a melding of genres so i guess that didn't hold it back for me but i can i can understand and see why it would for some people uh but yeah you know some of my favorite movies are like alien and stuff and i definitely think sci-fi horror is can be done really well yeah i i think that this movie is one that doesn't really follow a lot of tropes um but it doesn't seem like it follows the horror tropes in particular uh it doesn't even really seem to follow sci-fi tropes so i I wouldn't say that being sci-fi holds it back from being horror but I think the way that the movie is presented is not in a way to build tension or build horror, suspense, those kind of things. I I think mostly it just doesn't feel like horror to me at the end of the day, the whole film. And like I said, of course, we'll get more into why, but I think that maybe it having sci-fi in the front of center might have kept people from going into the movie thinking it was horror, but I 
don't think that that's ultimately why it doesn't get designated at that because at the end of the day people are watching it and they're coming to the conclusion after seeing the film so I, I think that there is an idea of like if you prepare people for the idea that something is or isn't going to be a horror movie that that might influence their perception when they actually watch the film but I don't know how much that plays into things with this film all right, so we're going to continue the theme of intermixing some trivia throughout the episode. So we'll start with the first one, which is uh, what was the alternate title considered for Shaun of the Dead? Was it Flat of the Living Dead, Brain Dead, or Tea Time of the Dead? I really want it to be Tea Time of the Dead, but I'm going to go with Brain Dead. I think Brain Dead as well. I am Brain Dead as well. I am just using my intuition here, but thinking maybe it's flat of the living dead. But if it's brain dead, that would have been my second guess. I tricked you all. It is tea time of the dead. Ooh. Oh, shut the front door. That's awesome. Why didn't they name it that? That's a great name. They can drink at my pub. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly why they decided to change it. I think Shaun of the Dead's a great name, but tea time of the dead would have been fun as well. But Flat of the Living Dead was just 100% my own creation, and Brain Dead is also what Dead Alive is known of, known as abroad, even though we call it Dead Alive here in the United States. That's why I was thinking it wasn't Brain Dead, but I, I don't know, I thought maybe, who knew, who knew, maybe they could have chose that. Teehee. All right, well, let's talk about tension building since that got mentioned initially. Um, so there's a lot of overt foreshadowing in this film. And I wanted to see if that foreshadowing added any tension to the film for you or not. No, I think it was, I don't know, added for exposition maybe. But it, for me, it didn't build the tension. Like I spent most of this movie not being truly afraid for our, you know, um, faithful pub goers. So it, it didn't add anything for me. I guess for me, like the foreshadowing feels just like a, I mean, we, I guess we talked about things that are in the, the blood and ice cream trilogy. And I guess that I've failed to mention that, or did we talk about that? Anyways, it feel, it just felt like one of the things that they do in, in these movies. So it does, didn't add tension for me. It was just one of those things that it's like on a rewatch, you can see that they told you exactly what was going to happen at the beginning. So, I don't know. That's more what it felt like to me, not tension building. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I wasn't necessarily looking for, like, foreshadowing or tension building. I was more looking for, like, okay, what's going to be the running jokes throughout this movie? <laughs> and that's kind of what it was more than anything. It was just the foreshadowing was just giving me what the running jokes were going to be. Now, I know for some of us, it's probably been a while since we have seen this for the first time, but uh, did you feel like, at least on your first viewing, that the foreshadowing was noticeable? Is that something that you caught on to, or is that something that you only found out later after you'd watched the film? Wait, am I the only person who just saw this for the first time? Maybe. It depends on Matt's answer. This was my first time seeing it also. Oh, thank God. I didn't want to be the only virgin. <laughs> I've seen it a bunch of times. I, I've, I've, yeah. So did you, you felt like you did notice that though on your first watch then since Brianna and Matt, you both saw it very, re this is your first time. Yeah. 
Yeah, it felt like it felt very much like watching Shaun of the Dead or Hot Fuzz. It felt like uh, they were doing the same sort of foreshadowing, and it was gonna. It was like it's almost like reading a Stephen King novel if you've read twenty other Stephen King novels. And I would agree. I don't feel like the foreshadowing, while it was noticeable, I, I don't feel like it added any tension. It was kind of more like, uh, I don't know. It was the promise of fun things to come more than it was tension building for me. So it seems like we're probably all in agreement on this already, but just to check, we talked about if this is a horror movie, it's clearly a horror comedy, or you'd say maybe horror sci-fi comedy. Um, we talked about before how horror comedy tends to have that sort of tension roller coaster where it ratchets things up and then cools things off with a joke. So it sounds like no one really felt like that was present in this film. No, there weren't really stakes, you know, like it was all for laughs. One of the things that I think about with this movie is the stuff on the foreground, like the, the tension on the foreground is more it was it was always more to me uh to have like gary gary and andy's story like and their the tension between them that's what was kind of building and like you know gary tricked andy into coming by telling him that his mom died and like like you can kind of see some of that stuff coming to a head and kind of getting danced around a little bit. And that was more of the tension that was on the surface. I felt like, um, but on after like seeing the movie all the way through and maybe on rewatches, like, and seeing some of the stuff that's going on in the background and like kind of realizing, or maybe being more aware of what's going on and that people are actually dying in the background. Like, I feel like there's this kind of whole, it's very like low on it's very deep i guess like you don't see it or and it's not there at all until you like think about it outside of the movie but i feel like there is the tension there if you're thinking about it that way if that makes any sense so it's more what you're bringing to the film than what the film's actively presenting you with yeah for sure like you wouldn't i i didn't feel that on the first time watching maybe the first couple times watching um just because it's not it's not being explicitly talked about for the most part like they throw you know throw little lines in there like oh that person got mulched but then they're immediately on to other things and uh and so, so it's just not dwelled upon very much until you start thinking about those things a little more do you feel like there was ever a horror style stomach drop moment in the film if there is one, um, for me, it was um, probably the moment that uh, I think it's Pete uh, gets taken by the blanks in the forest. That's fair. Yeah, that that's the only moment I can think of that it's like, oh, somebody just died. Like, um, you know, it's all fun and games until somebody gets, you know, blue lighted, <laughs> I guess. And uh you know, I guess I don't know if they actually killed him right then or if they just knocked him out and then took him away to be mulched or whatever. But like that was the moment that like, I guess to me, if there are any stakes, that's when the stakes maybe got raised a little bit. I love that they mulch things and are they're like, we can make trees grow with you awful human beings. <laughs> yeah. 
we're being, you know, earth friendly with our murderers. I love that. They're eco conscious. They're going to murder your ass, but they care about the planet. <laughs> Do you feel like there's a stomach drop moment for for the rest of you guys? Uh, is there something like or a particularly tense moment? I didn't think that there was one just because I think I viewed this whole thing just kind of as a straight up comedy. But I agree with Joe now that I'm looking back like that would have been my pick, I think. I guess I was going to say when they are, I think it's, I don't know which number pub it's in, but when they're actually like starting to have a fight with like a ton of them and they're all, they all sort of are pouring in that moment kind of felt like maybe it could be getting close to to horror, but it still felt much more sci-fi than anything else. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with Joe. I think the moment that uh, Pete gets taken is probably the most stomach-droppy, the moment of stomach-droppy horror moment that the film offers up, at least in my opinion. I was gonna say that that scene where where all the blanks are kind of pouring in is almost like it's very very similar to when the zombies are pouring in to yeah. the pub and Shaun of the Dead, and it just kind of shows you the contrast of what makes that a horror scene and what makes that a sci-fi scene. It's almost like they're the same scene, but one is sci-fi and one's horror. Oh, that's a very good point. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. To go along with that, one of the other things I was thinking about with that is if I think that's a good example of maybe a stomach drop scene, too, uh, especially when it's like they just like did this really high energy, intense fight scene. And like, you know, they're like going full out, you know, giving it everything they got and they sort of win the fight. But then all the all the blanks just walk back in and they're just all like ready to go again. And it's like they did that fight for nothing. It's true. It doesn't seem like it's a fight that they can win. They'll never have the numbers. They'll get tired eventually. That could have been a lot more of a bleak moment. It's true. But just like Matt pointed out, the way it's played, it doesn't end up coming off that way. Yeah, for sure. And especially where, like, when they do walk back in, like, they don't start the fight again. It's more of a moment of, like, the the blanks or the network trying to say, like, we don't actually want to fight you. So maybe just cool down. It's like, we can fight you. But, yeah, anyways, I it just sort of diffuses the ten- tension. All right, well, let's try another round of trivia, which is... Which of the following is not a pub name used in the movie? So I've got The Siren Song, The Old Familiar, and The Hole in the Wall. I think it's The Siren Song. No, I thought that was one. Yeah, I'm not sure on that because they are all like, they could be any of those. Well, no, there was a mermaid thing. Maybe they said mermaid, not siren. I know the old familiar is one. I don't remember the hole in the wall. I'm going to go with the hole in the wall. I'm probably wrong. I'm pretty sure that there's the old familiar and the hole in the wall. So I'm going to say the siren song is not one. 
You are correct. The Siren Song is not actually a pub. There is the Mermaid, which is basically the name I oh, want. Damn it! See, see, I didn't know there was gonna be a quiz. Oh. <laughs> well, I, I thought we'd keep trying this and see how it goes. So hopefully, it's it's fun to listen to as well. If it's not, tell us and we'll change it, maybe, or maybe we won't. I don't know. We'll see what we feel like. Deal with it. All right, so we've talked a bit about the fight sequences, so I figured we'd get into at least tangentially to that, which is the gore in the film and how it's used. Uh, so first off, I wanted to see, would you consider this a gory movie? It could have been, but it was not, because I was thinking a lot about how if the blank's blood had been red, I might say yes, but because it was blue, no. The blue, like, sanitized it for me. It didn't have the same, like, effect that seeing actual red blood splatter in a movie has on me. Yeah, I'd agree. I I don't think it's a gory movie. And, like, the first time, like, in the bathroom when they're fighting and, like, those first couple of things, you're, like, kind of ready for it to be gory, but then... Um, but then it's not, you know, the head gets exploded on the urinal when Gary tackles the guy and you're, or, uh, doesn't get exploded, but it pops off. Anyways, they're just like giant action figures instead of, um, I don't know, bio, whatever, uh, which was an interesting choice. Cause I felt like the way they described like copying people, they could have gone with like people, they could have gone with like clones or something like that. But they didn't. They went with like a, a, a blank, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So I think there's a there's a lot of reasons. Like Brianna kind of hit it on the head with like the color of the blood. Uh, even in like a lot of video games, like Halo, for example, they're made conscious choices to make the blood be different colors, and for some reason that really dehumanizes the whole thing and takes you away from from it being violent at all like even uh brianna's name for the podcast tonight is blue goo even though it could be like blue blood but she thought she instinctively put blue goo because she probably didn't think of it as really blood you know (laughs) but i think that's that's kind of the big thing correct yeah, and you do see that across a lot of different media. I mean, we did the Mortal Kombat bonus episode, and just thinking about that, I went and I played through some of the original games. And like the first game, when it was released on Super Nintendo, they changed the blood color to white. So it was like sweat being knocked off of people in order to keep it from getting a, a worse rating. And then you have similar things happening in even the Evil Dead franchise, where you've got gore spewing everywhere but there's a lot of times in the second movie particularly where what's being shot is like black or green and it's other colors not red all to avoid it from feeling too gory in some situations so yeah i I would agree i don't think that this ends up feeling like a gory movie even though yeah if you changed all of the blood from the blanks to red then suddenly like it's an absolute bloodbath the whole film through you know It's more like ink. It's more like ink. So I guess probably safe to say there was never like a horror style cringe factor for the gore that you were witnessing. 
No, definitely not. Yeah, like I guess just the moment that I already mentioned, it's like when he when Gary tackles the one and you can see like his head's going to get smashed and you're like what's going to happen? Oh my gosh, this is going to be messy. But then when it does happen, you're it, it's immediately diffused and you're like, "Oh, well, that wasn't so bad." So on the other side of that, our main characters mostly react to violence, kind of like cartoon characters, at least I felt like they did. They shake off all kinds of attacks. They never have any real injury. They get right back up after being knocked down, Chumbawamba style. Uh, were you ever afraid for our main characters? And did that affect how you classified the film? I know we've said before probably there wasn't stakes. So how did that come off to you? I don't think I was ever really afraid for them. Um, their ability to kind of shake off those attacks, like, again, that just played more into the comedic element of the movie for me. Like, I was like, oh, ha, 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 he's going to hurt in the morning. <laughs> he might die, but probably not. I um, I mean, yes and no, I guess. On the surface, yes. Or, or on the surface, um, I wasn't afraid for them. But on it goes back to that thing I was talking about before on the below side on like rewatch after you realize that a couple of them actually did die. Like, and I don't it's a weird thing where it's like, I can't go back and with that knowledge and watch it for the first time and be worried for them. Um, but like, I don't know. I'm, I'm still like watching it on repeat viewings and being like, Hey, that's, this is where this person died. We didn't, maybe think about that at the time but yeah anyways i guess i i wasn't afraid for them on the surface no it, it just felt like and also like everybody was just doing insane damage to the blanks like just like everybody was capable of smashing one of those things heads in or ripping its limbs off so it just didn't feel like anybody was really in danger of course you know by the end of it that some folks were actually in danger but until then you really don't think of it as like real threat like it feels like if a lot if enough of them had a board with a plank in it they could <laughs> they could beat them all you know but what if they make a board with a nail in it that's too big and then it ends up destroying them all yeah that's what i meant to say a plank with a nail in it did i say a board with a plank in it well i don't know you know what i meant <laughs> Yeah, Simpsons reference. And if you don't get the reference, then go watch all of the Treehouse of Horror episodes of The Simpsons for the first 10 seasons. If you want to stop after that, I won't blame you. Um, one, one other thing on that I was just thinking about is like the blanks seem like not very formidable. Like we've already said, like they get busted apart and anybody seems to be able to take them on one-on-one -on -one or even one-on-multiple um, so that does, I don't know, the, but the other part of that is like when they finally do take Pete, like the one like cop blank, like holds out his hand and just like does his weird, uh, you know, glowy eyes thing and puts his hand on, on Pete's face. And it's sort of, and you think back earlier in the movie and they tried to do that and it's kind of like their special move, I guess, <laughs> but that that's a lot of that's a lot scarier of a move than just like the fighting matches they go through so it's again like a thing that you don't think about maybe till later but it's like any one of them if they would have like 
gotten attacked like that maybe could have been killed. So, I don't know. Anyways, it's just an interesting thing to think about for me, I guess. I do want to talk about death and how it's used in this movie in just a sec, but I want to see... The other thing about it, too, is we've kind of touched on the fact that they have these highly choreographed and elaborate fight sequences. And I wanted to see if... Did that lend itself to a horror tone for you, or did it take you out of that mindset completely? What were you feeling during those fight sequences? For me, it felt more like the superhero movie uh, fight scenes rather than horror. Uh, I can't give you a specific reason why. Maybe it goes back to like not being super concerned for for the characters. Like, eh, it'll be fine. But yeah, it was just kind of like, I don't know. They had they didn't have superhuman strength, but like I knew that they were mostly going to win the fight. Yeah, and you, especially like for me, like that one moment at the beginning of the fight in that one bar where there's tons of them, you get Nick uh, Frost's carry character, like putting like a couple of like, um, <laughs> like stools on his hands and he's just like Hulk smash mode. Like it feels very much like superhero yeah. <laughs> fights. <laughs> I mean, the Hulk does that in the incredible Hulk with Edward Norton with cars, right? He gets a car smashes into pieces and gives himself car Hulk fists. So it's like the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like the fight scenes were just very comedic at the end of the day. And especially, like, the one blank has, like, legs, spinning legs for arms at one point. Like, I don't think any of the fight (laughs) scenes were uh, meant to be horror or induced tension. It was just kind of funny. I mean, we could argue that maybe it was body horror, you know, with the, the arms and the legs and all that good stuff. That would have been pretty creepy if it, the, it was actually blood. Like, if you, like, had, yeah. like, yeah, like, actual legs, like, getting put on. And then, like, that particular blank has, like, the blue coming out of her eyes and mouth and things. So if that was all, like, blood, that that feels like it could have been uh, body horror. It wasn't, but it could have been. So I I think, too, there's also that connection with there's the whole idea of like invasion of the body snatchers. But another analog to that, if you were doing like actual human parts being swapped out, then you sort of put yourself in the thing territory. Right. Because same idea of you don't know who's been taken and who's not been taken. And uh, but then suddenly, like if you're looking at a monster from the thing going ahead and swapping out its limbs in order to fight you better then yeah, you're definitely in horror territory. And I think there's maybe some inspiration from the thing in this film, certainly from other Carpenter work, which we'll we'll bring up later. But yeah, um, so there's definitely those inspirations, but it just comes down to the, the actual practical use in the film of them. So the other thing I wanted to just bring up, so Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, they both can be extremely violent. Obviously, we had our conversation previously about whether or not Hot Fuzz qualified and whether or not Shaun of the Dead qualified. Um, But in both of those films, there's no argument that people die horribly. However, in this film, it features very little or very limited on-screen violence to humans. So I wanted to see what you felt like that choice by the filmmakers, knowing that they can do violence, said to you about the genre that they were aiming for. I don't know. Someone else can go. I don't have an elaborate answer for this one. 
I think it's kind of what we already said that I think that it was probably very intentional of them to not have violence, especially towards people, because that is kind of a, a tr that is one sort of trope of sci-fi is that if there is violence, it's usually towards like whatever bug or alien. And uh, so I think that was kind of definitely what they were going for. They weren't trying to go for a super gory vibe like with the other ones. I don't know if I have too much to add on that. I, I agree with that. I, it's it was an interesting choice, and I, I it's a, it almost surprises me that they made that choice because I was trying to think of like why, and it's like it feels like this this movie, like all of the Cornetto trilogy movies, I think to one degree or another have a lot of heart behind them, um, and I think this one does too. And like they were trying to like touch on some deeper topics especially with this one it was like sort of a like you can't go home kind of vibe um or that's the message the biggest message to me um that i took away from it and i was thinking my first thought on that was like oh well they maybe were trying to not pull focus away from that idea but i don't think that's a fair thing to say because like Shaun of the Dead, I think, has just as much heart, I guess, for lack of a better word, and but they still use much more extreme violence. So I don't know. I guess I don't, I don't have a good answer for that other than maybe they were just trying to pull a little away from the horror vibe. Maybe this was supposed to be the more family-friendly one. I almost wonder that a little bit, yeah. Because it feels like they really toned it down. I really do think it's almost like a trope thing because Shaun of the Dead is very much like referential and following the tropes of a zombie movie and Hot Fuzz does a lot of the same with like a buddy cop movie and this movie is supposedly not supposed to be following tropes but it it's the sci-fi one of the trilogy and that is one of the main tropes of sci-fi. So I don't know, it feels like that was what they were going for. So I wanted to get into, we've talked a little bit about it, and I figure we'll we'll dig in a little bit more now, is you have, well, all right, so as far as death in the film, I'll start out with this first question, which is the idea of, in the absence of the network, do you think that the blanks are the same as the people that they replaced? No, I don't, because uh, I don't think the full personality is there. They're just a replicant, like they're... They're just, I don't know, a copy. They're not quite the same. They kind of go through the motions, and we see that at the end of the movie where the, the blanks reanimate, and, you know, this one went back to his weird real estate job, and this one, you know, is doing just fine as well. It, it's, I don't know, they're kind of emptier than their originals, I guess. Yeah, uh, I I don't think they're the same as the people they replaced. Like, I I mean, they say in the movie, like, they have they come back with selective memories and uh you know that was a ongoing joke in the movie uh but uh i think you know that's on purpose like they're meant to be i don't know a a shadow of of that person they can fill in they can fill in in the day-to-day -day life of that person but they aren't that person um, and then like, I think after the network leaves and they wake up or they wake back up, like, I guess in my personal opinion, in my 
headcanon in it. Like they sort of uh, have to kind of figure out who they are on a personal level. I think they are sentient beings. Um, and I think they, I think they become their own person. I don't think that they are the same person that they were supposed to replace. Yeah, I agree with the sentient thing. Like they definitely were feeling like they were their own person, but like, I don't know. I, how would that be to like have the network control you? And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden you're like reanimated, having an existential crisis and you still have to go to a fucking nine to five. That sounds awful. I feel, I really <laughs> right. feel for them. I do. <laughs> I think one of the things that maybe uh, solidified that idea to me is when you uh, like towards the end of the movie and you get uh, the network kind of offering Gary this um, this deal basically and you know like they're like here's a blank of your younger self and that self will carry on your legacy and you know you'll be sort of immortalized in that but like that's I, I mean, I'm, I'm probably forgetting moments, but like that, I think was one of the few moments where you have a blank of somebody and the real person on screen at the same time. And like, I guess for me, that was one of the moments where it's like, okay, these, these are different people. Like, uh, you know, they're different beings and sure the kid has, I, I don't know. I'm probably belaboring the point, but like that was one of the moments where like it's a visual like they are two different people. I don't think I could have gotten on board with the network, y'all. I really don't. I think I would have gotten mulched. I don't someone walking around looking like my 20 year old self and have it not be me. That would just piss me off. I'd be jealous as hell. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me think a little bit about um I'm sure there's lots of different fiction where stuff like this happens, but the thing that I think of the most is the Invincible comic series. So, spoiler for that coming up, I think that they covered it in the first episode, or they did cover it in the first season of the Amazon series. So, if you've seen that, you'll be up to date. But there's this character, Robot, and he ultimately what he really is is he's kind of this terribly deformed person who has a connection to this robot avatar that's running around. And so eventually what he ends up doing is he has a clone of himself made that is a normal functioning human being and then has all of his memories implanted into that clone. So for the clone, it wakes up thinking it's the real deal with all of its memories, but the original knows, of course, that that's not them. And so in the story, the original allows himself to die knowing that he'll continue on in this new body that for its perception just feels like it went to sleep in its old body and woke up in its new one so i can't help but wonder a little bit if it could be that way for some of the blanks because they do make the joke about selective memory but i think there's still a process of selection so in theory the network could put all of the memories back so it could be that you you know it could be that the peter that wakes up as a blank has a memory of passing out surrounded by them and then wakes up now in a new body and uninterrupted. And I feel like it's just the movie doesn't give you enough information to be a hundred percent sure that that didn't happen. Yes. You do see multiple copies and you do see Gary encountering his blank, but I guess if there are selective memories, part of the selection could be whether or not you're 
what the transition process was. So I guess that'd be the thing I'd be curious if there was ever a sequel, and I don't think there should be, but it would be interesting to explore is what does the blank know? Does is Pete, you know, controlled by the network? Like, do they wire in and tell them what to say, but then when they wire back out, do you still remember that you're part of that? It seems like at least the way they deal with them throughout the movie, for the most part, they remember that, but I don't know. I just, it doesn't seem like it has to be that way. So I, I don't know. I'm still kind of wrestling with how I feel about that side of it. If, yes, if it was me knowing that I was dying and that a robot was running around looking like me, you know, I wouldn't be okay with that. Um, in some ways, I guess in watching this film, it mutes a little bit of my feeling of the characters dying and the intensity of that, knowing that there's some element of them that continues to exist, particularly uh, all all of them, but Gary has two of them running around in this world. So I don't know. I'm still making up my mind how I feel about it and if it lends itself to a horror feeling, I guess. A couple of the things that that whole idea makes me think of are like in like the Marvel movies, you get um, Gamora dying, but then like her alternate universe self coming in and it's like, it's her. It looks like her, and the, like she went through probably almost all the exact same experiences, or very close to. Um, but you know, she doesn't know Star Lord. She doesn't love him. Like it's not Gamora. It's not Star Lord's Gamora. Um, so it's it, like she's still the same person, but not the same person. And I know that's a little bit different than what we're dealing with here, but that's one of the things that it makes me think of. And the other thing I think about is like, um, it's kind of, uh, I guess it's just a joke online or whatever. Uh, but it's the, it's in like in Star Trek when people get beamed places, it's like they're actually getting like <laughs> broken down and they're getting killed when they're being beamed somewhere else. And then like a copy of them is just uh, showing up elsewhere. And so it's like, it's, they actually die every time they get transported. But anyways, those are a couple of the random thoughts that I think about with that too. And I, I agree that like, it doesn't, I, I don't feel like it, any of that necessarily lends it to horror or not. I guess for me, like I, I still, I, I think like a clone or somebody else or, or a clone or a robot or whatever, that's a even if it's an exact copy of you um like that person or that entity i think is their own entity even if they were exactly the same as you up until the point of their creation uh but i think if you die at that point like i don't know you're still dead like <laughs> i don't know it's something's something's being you but like it's two separate things anyways I guess that's my thoughts on it. So are you feeling the loss of those characters entirely or a little bit less because of the replacement? I guess, how did their deaths impact you as a viewer of the film? Does it feel horrific or initially do you have to spend time thinking about it? How does that hit? For me personally, like I, uh, it didn't hit as hard at first but thinking about it more is when it it did hit harder it's like oh yes that person that human is dead and mulched and make helping trees grow now and and that's cool that there's a robot of them like i like 
I've got no problem with the the Pete bot and the oh man bot um like but they're their own person they're a different thing especially now that they're disconnected from the network um because they just don't have that influence anymore and I feel like they they do kind of carry on that life uh but it's like a um it's a parallel life not a not a not it's not the same life I guess so I, I guess, I don't know if that answered your question wholly, but I guess, yes, I, it's on, on further thought, like I do feel their deaths as real deaths. Yeah, I think if anything, the fact that they're sort of still there in a way uh, kind of lowers the stakes even further of deaths in the movie because you still have that same actor on screen for the most part except for uh half of what is the guy's name who was the hobbit but yeah it's half of his head yeah <laughs> but i think if anything like i said it lowers makes it feel less uh the stakes are lower just overall because there is that question of well that that person is sort of still around and I think there's the whole idea that the reveal of what happens to the original is played for laughs, right? Like, it's not a Soylent Green moment where you're horrified to find out that you've been eating them as Soylent Green all along. It's like, it's just, oh, it's a joke. We mulch them. Don't worry. It's environmentally sound. I did like the little nod to Soylent Green. And yeah, I agree. All right, let's do a quick trivia break here. Uh, what was the name of Edgar Wright's first feature film? Is it a... Fistful of Fingers, Murder Most Horrid, or Mash and Peas? I like Murder Most Horrid. Again, that needs a monocle, too. That was my guess, too, but it is a total guess. I'm just going to guess Mash and Peas. That was a tough one. It is actually a Fistful of Fingers. Ooh. What? A Murder Most Horrid and Mash and Peas were television shows that he worked on, but A Fistful of Fingers is actually his first proper feature film. Ugh, technicalities. Which are fun to trip people up with. Yay! Sorry. Foiled again. Alright, so I wanted to dig in a little bit into the presentation of the villains of the film, so both the blanks and the network. Um, I do have a quote from Edgar Wright here, also from that IndieWire interview, which was a really good one, so check it out if you get the chance, where he said, I was always taken with the glowing eyes, glowing-eyed pirates in the fog. The fog is one of my favorites, and even though he only put it on screen for a couple of minutes, that image was burned into my subconscious, end quote. So the fog being the John Carpenter film, and of course he's talking about the original, not the later one that had uh, Tom Welling in it. But uh, I wanted to see, because there is that kind of creepy look to them. So I, do you think that the blanks felt creepy? Were they meant to be scary? I feel creepy, but I don't know that that necessarily equates to scary. Um, it was sort of that uncanny valley thing where you're like, oh, something's off here. But it, it wasn't frightening. Yeah, I get for me, it was like the, the creepiest part of them like the glowing eyes are creepy t too but it was more for me it was more like when like our our heroes walk by and then like 
all of the blanks in unison like turn their heads towards them like those little moments were like oh that's uh, unsettling yeah it was the it was the subtle weird hive behavior that lent more to a creepy factor yeah i almost got another john carpenter vibe off of those sequences too it kind of made me think of prince of darkness where you've got like the the people collecting outside the church as the night goes on uh it made me think a little bit of that did the way that you view the blanks change as the film continued i mean they're we're shown that they're easily easy to incapacitate um, we watched our main characters take out tons of them so just did your view of them change they're scary at first did that hold or creepy at first anyway you might say creepy at first but like i i really felt bad for the reanimated blanks because there was more of like an empathetic connection to them like oh you're just trying to find your way in the world too but whenever when they were getting slaughtered oh heck no that was just funny yeah once you kind of realize that they were maybe being they're kind of puppets of the network uh like when they are when before you maybe realize that they you feel more like they're an enemy, but by the end, yeah, just like you said, Brianna, just once they're disconnected, they take on their own lives and you feel, I felt more empathetic for them. Yeah, it's like watching someone lose everything through an MLM. You just, you feel a little bad. Hey, Lip Sense <laughs> is going to take off any day now. <laughs> I... Definitely agree with what was said. Um, they initially feel just like cannon fodder, but then you're as the movie goes on and then towards the end, you realize that there's a little bit more to them than meets the eye. So uh, I think that's what you're supposed to feel from it, honestly. Yeah, I, I agree. The movie definitely presents them in a way where they become more empathetic as time goes on. Definitely, if you haven't felt it before by the ending, you feel it. Um, like I said earlier, I do feel like, at least in their earlier presentation, they did feel like something that I could envision seeing in a horror film. Um, does that at least come across to any of the rest of you as well, or did it never feel that way for you? Mm, I don't think it felt that way, no. If anything, they kind of felt like old school movie monster kind of things that you might see like double feature at a drive-in, but I wouldn't necessarily even classify that sort of thing as horror. Depends on the situation. I I really like the soundtrack for or the way that the like music is used in this movie, but in all the Cornetto trilogy, but it takes away from the the horror feeling in this because like just thinking about some of those scenes especially ones where they like all move in unison and those kind of things if you put like some actual like horror music over the top of that like it could have i think they would have felt a more a lot more like horror monsters um but uh but because of the music selection it uh kind of take took it away a little bit for me so this is neither here nor there as to whether or not the movie is horror, but it was something I was thinking about myself. So just a kind of brief segue. So they talk about the marmalade sandwich. So that's the three girls in the film and the nickname they had for them in high school because there was a, a blonde and a redhead and a blonde. 
And uh, when you see them in the movie, they all appear as their younger selves. They hint at the idea that they might, like earlier in the film, seen the back of their heads as adults, but we never confirm if that's actually them or not. So I guess my question was, do you feel like the network, uh, did they choose to just have them appear young in order to seduce King and his friends? Or did the marmalade sandwich decide at some point to go along with the plan in exchange for being made young again? Like, I don't know. I was trying to decide that in my head. It's probably just to seduce them, but just the idea that someone might take the deal that Gary chooses not to take in exchange, like maybe someone would make that deal. Maybe some of the blanks that you see did make the choice upon the revelation to be forever young as this other version. So I guess I was curious what you guys' take was. I'm going to go with they absolutely joined the network so that they could be young and and amazing again. That's why. Yeah, that makes sense. I'll go with it. I'll take it. I hadn't thought about it, but it definitely seems like uh, there's just a lot of things in this movie where they could expand upon them a lot. Like the whole, uh, what, what do you call that? The whole epilogue of the film could be for setting up a whole other film. You know what I mean? So there's definitely some a lot of things that you could read into with each individual person and what was their story. And uh, so I think that that's an interesting question, but I don't have anything really beyond that. Probably it was just a choice that was made to, to seduce them. Like you said, that was certainly my, my impression of it, uh, of what was going on, but I had never thought that deeply about it. Cause you do have that moment in the bar where they like just see the backs of their heads. And I guess it's never specified if that is the older version of them or the younger version of them. Um, I don't know. It'd be interesting if it was the older version of them, but then the network still like maybe the older versions of them are still walking around as humans, even though the network decided, okay, well this will be a good temptation for them. I don't know. I don't have an answer, I guess. Fair enough. All right, so I did want to look at the network as a whole. So we're introduced to the blanks, but they're clearly just pawns used by the network itself. Whatever the the actual living creatures behind the network are, we never see them. So we only really get to see what their goal is and how they're how they operate. So I was kind of curious. The network, their ultimate goal is at least stated to be the betterment of humanity and to include them in the galactic population to prepare them for that. They've given humanity in this version of things all this technology and increased the quality of life by doing so. So I wanted to see, like, regardless of their methods, did this goal affect how you saw them and their overall tone in the film? No, they were definitely still the bad guys, whether or not they had good intentions or not. Like, I'm sorry, they were mulching people. Yeah, uh, I guess I ended up feeling a little bit like they're they're not they they didn't feel like a villain to me. Like, yes, they're the villain of the story. I agree with that because like they're killing our heroes. I just feel like I I ended up feeling like they're they're a little too um, removed from like single organisms 
to like be concerned about that and i guess on that level it feels like sort of a thing where it's like well like it just doesn't matter to them if they kill some people because it's just like who they're just these little ant or ant or violent apes i guess <laughs> sitting on this on this rock and they're you know just trying to make life better for them and they might just have to kill some of the pop anyways the po- I, I digress the point is i guess i did i could see the like idea at least that that they really were they really are just trying to like get earth up to the level of where they could join the galactic society i think that's an interesting idea and like definitely their methods are not moral as far as you know as as far as we we view morals but like i could see a a, like i don't know godlike entity like that having like a kind of i don't know different set of morals i'm not saying i agree with it or anything but i just could understand where it's coming from i guess so it did feel a little less villainous maybe like because they were doing it for the greater good the greater good (laughs) exactly they felt less nefarious than like the borg for example like because they were they had good intentions, but I guess the Borg could be argued that they have good intentions, too. I think that's one of the things that makes the Borg interesting is they do think they have good intentions. All good villains do think that they're the hero. Yeah, but uh, I think this in, in this film, it's like a little bit closer to... They're definitely, I would say, if it's a spectrum, the Borg are probably, you know, maybe like a eight or nine on the evil scale, and these guys are like maybe a five or six on the evil scale of at least the how they present themselves. <laughs> I think the other thing, too, is I think it's interesting that you could kind of have a talk with them and reason with them a little bit. So in that respect, maybe it made them seem a little bit less villainous to me. But I think the other thing, too, is they chose to basically unleash this EMP on the entire planet and erase all of the technology when they left. They didn't have to do that. So they basically knocked the whole planet back to the stone age and they're like, Oh, you don't want to play nice. Okay. Well we're leaving, but we're also taking our ball with us. I, I could see that being part of their like quote unquote, higher level of morals though, because if they, if they came to this planet and was like, okay, these are drunk, violent apes that we just cannot get on our level and we can't have them, like, you know, basically if we leave all of our technology with them, like, they could come out into the galaxy eventually and um, without us allowing them to enter the galactic society, enter the galactic society with, like, our violent tendencies and I don't know, maybe that's a weird way of looking at it, uh, being like, oh, violence is bad, uh, but also we mulch people. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly where they maybe stand on that, but I could see that being part of their like code of conduct, I guess, is being like, if we have to pull out of a world, then we don't. We also don't let them or don't give them a path to to come join us. 
I guess it speaks a little bit to how they see humanity, right? Like on one side, they're sort of indicating we gave you this technology and sort of saying that they didn't think humans would be capable of developing it on their own. But then by removing it, they're also making the implication that, well, they'd be able to develop it further now that they have it. Because why wouldn't they just sit there and think, well, if they couldn't make it on their own, then technology will just pause right here. Like it'll never extend past what we've given them because they just couldn't be capable of figuring it out. I don't know. Yeah, and it's like a thing where it's like, uh, at this point, you know, humanity would have seen all that technology and, I don't know, but eventually would be able to probably get back up to that point. I don't know. I don't know. I figure we'll do one more trivia break here, uh, which is that Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright worked together for the first time on an English TV series. So which TV series was that? Was it Spaced? Is it Bill Bailey? That's the name of the show. Or Asylum? I'm going to guess, is it Bill Bailey? I feel like this is probably a trick question again, uh, but uh, I mean, it feels like the obvious answer is spaced, but I don't know for certain that they didn't work on something else previous to that, but I guess I'll still say spaced because I love that show. Yeah, I feel like it could easily be something that's not spaced. So what were the other two answers again? There's a show called Is It Bill Bailey or Asylum? I'm going to just say Asylum, so we cover the spectrum of all three answers, but it's probably spaced. <laughs> well, this one was a trick question. It is actually Asylum. Oh, yeah, buddy. Rude. <laughs> I think I made these questions too hard. But anyway, so we'll, we'll leave it at that as far as trivia goes. So that puts uh, our winner at Matt with two points, and Joe had one point, and Brianna had zero points. So yeah, I maybe made these too tough. I'm happy with the result. The lowest number wins, right? It's like that card game that I can't play, right? It's golf score, yeah. Okay, I wanted to get a little bit into the characters here. Um, So we've talked before about how a character's reaction to events in a movie can help inform the audience's reaction to events in a movie. So, you know, if the character stays calm, then maybe the audience also stays calm. If the characters kind of laugh at something, maybe you can laugh at something. So how did the character's reaction to the whole situation affect your horror classification? I mean, the reactions were comedic. I didn't think they acted like a horror movie. Like, all of it just played super comedic. I felt like a part of that uh, was they were supposed to be drunk, like, pretty much the entire movie. So, like, their reactions to things are kind of supposed are are being viewed through that lens so it does take it away but it doesn't make it not i don't know it's not it doesn't that doesn't necessarily for me take it away from it being a horror situation or not it's just you have to kind of be like all right well these people are are drunk so i don't know if that makes any sense well i think at least one of the things because like we brought up earlier, the fact that there's this is the third in this thematic trilogy allows you to kind of see how the characters might act differently if they're going for more of a horror tone. I think about, so one of the things I'll kind of ask, and you guys can respond to as well, but 
um, is the death of characters, for instance. Obviously, we've talked about deaths and what they meant to you as an audience member and everything that in this film with the blank replacement. But the other thing is looking at how the characters react to those deaths. If you're looking at, say, Shaun of the Dead, when any of your characters die, everybody feels it, they react to it, it's rough, there's real emotion there, and it can get kind of raw. But in this movie, our characters by the end know that their friend Pete and their friend, you know, Omen, whose actual name in the movie escapes me, but they know that... Yeah, Oliver. They know that their friends are dead, but they never spend any time really reacting to that in the film. At least I didn't feel like they did. So I guess that sort of informs at least a little bit of how the filmmakers thought about the film to me and informs how I should think about the film while watching it too, I guess, and how I felt about the film while watching it. If they don't care that much, how much do I care? I don't disagree with any of that. I think that's all spot on. I guess I'd, uh, the only thing I'd maybe add to it is, well, I already said it, I guess, is just like trying to also keep in mind that they're, they are shit-faced, basically. Like, <laughs> and like if you took Shaun of the Dead, uh, if you went into Shaun of the Dead and been like, all right, some of your characters are dying, but you also just had 12 pints, uh I don't know. I feel like the reactions would have been different in, in that movie. But again, not disagreeing by any means because I, I do agree with everything you're saying. It The way this film presents it, like you, it, it does lessen it. Yeah, I, I think the characters' reactions in the film itself really plants this one a lot firmer into comedy than what Shaun of the Dead is. Um so yeah I, I think the characters reactions to their situation definitely plays a, a part in it because you don't have those big dramatic moments like you said where where the deaths matter and it feels like the people are are suffering or mourning the loss of loved ones you don't really have that so yeah and then i wanted to talk a little bit about how this film ends in at least in two factors so by the end of the film, most of our main characters, minus Oliver, all had story arcs that in some way were resolved. And they mostly appear to be happier than they were when we found them. So it's not just that it's a happy ending. It's not just that our characters survived. But in a way, they're mostly better off than when we found them. And of course, that's open to arguments. So you can tell me if you think I'm up in the night about that. But I think that... You know, you see Andy's characters gotten back together with his wife and he's got the simpler life that he seems happier with. Gary kind of got what he want to kind of stay young forever with his buddies. Uh, you have uh, Stephen and uh, Rosamund Pike, whose character's name escapes me at the moment. But you see, like, the two of them got together. They Sam. seem to be happy. Sam, you said it was? Yeah. Yep, so Sam. So they've gotten together, they're happier, and then Oliver doesn't really have a story arc, like I said, so I mean, like, I don't know, they they never really gave him one, and then, I don't know, Peter, the version of him that goes home, I guess you could interpret, like, they still get their dad, and he seems more present than he was when they saw him in the intro, so I guess, how did you feel about that, like, is is everyone mostly getting kind of a happy ending, does that change things for how you view the ending even though it's like this apocalyptic setting 
Yeah, but I think that Shaun of the Dead also had kind of a happy ending. But see, that's you're allowed to have a happy ending with horror comedy. I don't know. I'm going to have to think about this now. Yeah, is I I I don't know. I agree. Like they all did kind of get their a version of a happy ending, but like I guess for me they're still kind of in the background in in the back of my head like I'm still thinking like but it's a an apocalyptic setting and this is still this is a world that like you know Gary goes into that bar with all these like marauder dudes with like war paint on and you're like okay well these guys are running around the world now like this and that's cool that all of our all of our characters are in good places but like it feels very tenuous too though it feels like they're their good places could easily be taken away from them just because of what the setting of the world is now. And especially for our blank characters, because it's shown very clearly how much prejudice there is against the blanks at, at this point. And like, it, it feels like their safety is very much in jeopardy. So I don't know. I guess that, that maybe takes away a little bit from their happy endings for me. It's kind of funny, too, when you have um, Gary walk into the bar at the end with his four blank friends, seeing how easily they were killed off in mass during the whole movie. It made me feel like that his buddies, they couldn't possibly be durable enough to survive that that altercation. Like Gary might make it out alive because he's an experienced fighter, but I just feel like his buddies are all just going to be smashy, smashy egg men by the end. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Especially since I think that's the only moment where anybody even like has real weapons. Like they're you know, people are pulling out knives and machetes and even guns and and you know, it's our our Gary and his blanks have us like swords and things, but like I I don't know, their safety feels very uncertain. Definitely. And I guess in terms of the final analysis of the whole thing, do you feel like this movie was ever trying to scare you? No, I agree uh, with what was said about the the trilogy movies really following tropes. Like I now that I'm looking at it in that light, I think that this really just was all about the sci-fi tropes. Yeah, I didn't I didn't feel like it was trying to scare me on the surface, at least. Yeah, I think what they were going for was like just hard comedy with maybe a little bit of nods to old kind of sci-fi alien body snatcher type movies but yeah i think it was just mostly 100 percent comedy yeah that's where i'd come at it too well in the final analysis of it would you recommend this film did you enjoy watching it was it a good one it was entertaining, but honestly, the first two films in this trilogy were far superior. That is my judgment. I have spoken. The, you know, that's I. That's how I felt about it for a while as well. Um, it took me. I like I. I loved Shaun of the Dead immediately. I loved Hot Fuzz immediately as well. And this one, um, I, it wasn't an immediate love for me. But I guess over time and after watching it a few more times and kind of maybe maybe getting a point 
maybe getting to a point in my life where I could uh, maybe relate to a few more of the topics they were just talking about as far as the like you can't go home type of stuff and just like the world moving on dark tower reference um (laughs) and uh and just some of those things that didn't hit me on the first viewing like it it's for me it is right in line quality wise with the other two or it has gotten to there gotten to that point with me and at like different times and different moods like i think i could say any one of those any one of the three of them is my favorite at different times um so for me, yes, absolutely, I would recommend this one. Um, and maybe you have to watch it a couple times, but or that was my experience. Yeah, I think it's a good one, but it is my least favorite of the three so far. But I also have only seen it once. I feel like it's one that I would have to watch a few times just to like really get everything. Because these movies, and at the end of the day, are sort of more about the the references and the jokes the ongoing jokes um so yeah ask me after i've seen it a few more times but this is my least favorite of the three but still i think it's worth a watch yeah i i do really like this film and i would recommend it i i would say that at least for me in general i think that i would say it's my least favorite of the cornetto trilogy but it's by like inches you know like Shaun of the dead is my all-time favorite because it's commenting on and referencing the genre that i love while also being its own thing in a very excellent way uh, Hot Fuzz, I, I like it more and more every time I watch it. Like I, I do like it. I like I, and I like it more every time I watch it and as I pick up on stuff. And same with this film too. It just continues to grow more and more on me every time I see it. Um, like Joe said, I think that as I get older, I can, you know, when I first saw Shaun of the Dead, I could relate a lot to that being kind of like a little bit aimless in your twenties and trying to figure out what to do with yourself. And then can relate a bit more to now the world's end. I think on both sides of it is having occasionally interacted with friends who I felt like were very much Gary King, like they haven't evolved at all. And then also on the same, on the other side of it, sometimes being worried that I am Gary King, (laughs) that I haven't evolved at all. So I don't know, being able to empathize with both sides of that and also, just as said, like that idea of the nostalgia of, you know, you, you can't go home again, as they say, you can you can visit there, but things are different. There's a Starbucks where you weren't expecting it to be. And, uh, you know, you've changed and the place has changed and you've grown apart and that's just how it is. But the message like of the film in general is just all you can do is you can move forward and and hopefully be happy with moving forward instead of having to constantly look back. I was going to say, it kind of, uh, when I was watching the movie, it made me think of, you know, you hadn't been, you you obviously live in Utah and you hadn't been to home in Pennsylvania as often. So it felt like for the a lot of the trips that you, when you would come back, you would want to go and see all the things that have changed. So it was kind of, it was kind of nostalgic of that feeling for me watching this movie is taking you around to the sites that I've just seen change over time. But for you, it's like this, 
change like in an instant kind of a thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I always do think of that with the trip and just kind of how, how weird that experience must be. Like you said, just for all the reasons you said, I always think about that on the other end of it too. It's like, yeah, you see this all the time. So like, yeah, you've seen, you know, the the mall torn down that I spent all the time at and stuff like that. And you get to experience it organically. So it's no surprise. And then like, meanwhile, like I pop back there and I'm like, Oh, the fairgrounds mall is gone. And I'll never be able to see the comic store that I loved being at there. It's moved to a different location, but it's not the same. <laughs> it's like that for me with my hometown, I guess, like I, I moved away from there and it was this place that I kind of always felt like would be, familiar it would always be home it would always you know always feel like coming back home when i went there and just now like my family's moved away from there um i still have some ex extended family there so i still go there sometimes but every time i do like it's it's from familiar but alien at the same time and it's i like i can relate to that message of this movie so much it's just it's really interesting yeah, it's definitely something that's that's nice about this film. That it's I enjoy that part of the message of it. Well, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, so this is obviously the third movie in the Cornetto trilogy, as we said plenty of times. We do have an episode in the first season where we talked about both actually Shaun of the Dead and Zombieland as one episode, but uh, so we did an episode covering Shaun of the Dead in the first season of the show, and we covered hot fuzz in the second season of the show again purely by accident we're doing this in order because our first episode of the whole series of the whole show was supposed to be hot fuzz but we lost that recording rather famously um, so if you enjoyed this episode and you want to go back and check out the other cornetto trilogy episodes we've got all those covered uh, we'll have to think of a different edgar wright or simon pegg movie to cover in the next season we'll see what that ends up being but in the meantime uh, the next thing that we're covering on Is It Horror is going to be our episode on Star Trek First Contact, which kind of marries what we've been talking about so far this season with both zombies and sci-fi with Night of the Living Dead and now World's End. So I uh, we'll hope you'll join us in two weeks back here for that. We'll have a little bit of a different angle because we actually took a poll leading into this one so we can share the results of that. So thanks for joining us once again. And I uh, hope you're enjoying the marathon. I have been Steve. And I've been Brianna. And I'm Joe. I'm Matt. Bye. And I'm the younger version of Steve. Bye. <laughs> Bye. What the fuck is WTF? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us at Is It Horror? We post new episodes every other Friday. To stay up to date on all things Is It Horror, follow us on Instagram or X at Is It Horror Pod, or email us at Is It Horror Podcast at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show and you'd like to help support us, you can recommend us to a friend, follow and rate us on your podcast app of choice, or you can check out our store on Redbubble. In the meantime, stay safe and keep asking yourself, Is It